and welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. And Kelsey, last week we were talking about the book that we're going to read today, and I was pretty sure that I had read this book, and you were pretty sure that you hadn't. Remember? I do remember. Turns out we were both wrong. (laughs) We were both (laughs) wrong. I thought that was so funny because I had never read this book before and you had it on your Kindle. So I had not only this book, but then like the next four books after it on my Kindle. I was like, who knew? (laughs) It's so funny because we've talked about this before, how we're just so bad about like remembering books, you know? I mean, now that we talk about them, You know, for an hour, I kind of feel like I'm remembering them a little bit more. But (laughs) and it is hard too because I looked at it and I did buy all these books in 2014. So that's a while ago. It's been (laughs) six years since I've thought of them. Yes. Uh, But anyhow, like I know you and I are both really excited to get into talking about this book. But before we do that, I have a question for you. Ask away. So what's the like happiest or funniest historical romance that you can think of? Something that has like really low stakes and is really rewarding. Do you have one of those? Um, it's hard, isn't yes, it? Yes, <laughs> it's hard. I'm thinking of one and it's a Julia Quinn. Ooh. And... One second. I'm going to look it up. (laughs) So I asked this question on Instagram to our Instagram followers because I was thinking about this right now. You know, sometimes things are a little bit stressful in the current world. And so I love reading romance because it's such an escape. But a lot of the romance books that we read, you know, they have an arc to them, right? So there's some like deep, Mm -hmm. dark moments or some difficult things that the characters have to get past. And maybe that's just not the mood that you're in, right? You know? Yeah. So did you find the title? I have the title. So it is The Secret Diaries of Miss Miranda Cheever. Ooh. And it's a, it's a cute little series too. And if I remember correctly, there's a, there's great scene in it with like a loud reading from a silly gothic novel. And if I'm remembering this book correctly, which I think I am. (laughs) Well, fun, great recommendation. And the one that came to my mind, usually when I think happy fun, it's usually going to be Julia Quinn or Tessa Dare. So Yes, also great. For me, I was just thinking, I mean, I think I've read almost everything that Tessa Dare has written. And the one that comes to mind, like as far as being really funny and kind of light, uh, light stakes is the wallflower wager. And mm. I know that the the heroine does have a little bit of a dark past, but it kind of like almost sneaks up at you. You don't quite realize it and it doesn't get too, too deep into that. But there are so many funny lines in that book. It seems very kind of low stakes in general. And the, the last line, like you're going to leave with a smile on your face. You're going to leave laughing. So that yes. would be my recommendation. <laughs> a very good recommendation. So now we do get to talk about the book we read this week, and that is The Madness of Lord Ian Mackenzie by Jennifer Ashley. Yes. And so Jennifer Ashley, or Allison James, is a new author for us. So we've got a Woo! couple facts for you. 
And the New York Times and USA Today bestselling author Jennifer Ashley has lived and traveled all over the world and now lives in the Southwest. She writes historical, paranormal, and contemporary romance as Jennifer Ashley, mysteries as Ashley Gardner, and paranormal romance and urban fantasy as Allison James. Jennifer slash Allison slash Ashley's more than 100 novels and novellas have also been translated into French, German, Spanish, Dutch, Japanese, Norwegian, Hungarian, Italian, Thai, Indonesian, and several other languages. Jennifer enjoys writing and reading above all else, and her hobbies include cooking, hiking, playing flute and guitar, painting, and building miniature rooms and dollhouses. Oh, that's fun. Isn't it? And I thought it was so cool that she has so many books. I mean, I don't, most of the authors that we've read so far kind of stick to one genre. I think Sherry Thomas is maybe the one that has done some more. I know Lisa Kleypas has done a contemporary or two, but generally speaking, the historical authors we've, we've read so far tend to be historical historical. romance. Yes. Yes. So really cool. Cause yeah. (laughs) And this book is so fantastic. I know. That's what I was going to say. And I was like, should we? <laughs> okay. So we're just going to tell everybody we loved this fantastic. book. <laughs> <laughs> we really loved this book. So, so we have some history facts this week. Uh, we're going to talk quite a bit about this now because we're going to talk about autism and we're going to talk about savant syndrome because this month happens to be autism awareness month and actually today the day that you are listening to this if you are listening to it on release day april 2nd is actually world autism awareness day and while i noticed that it was autism awareness month in april and so i thought we should read this book i had no idea (laughs) that the day we were releasing this was going to be world autism Autism Awareness Day. So that was just serendipity. Perfect timing, Zoe. <laughs> I do what I can. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about what autism actually is, because I think most of us in today's world have encountered autism. We hear about it. But if you don't necessarily have personal experience, you may not know exactly what autism is. So Autism is a complex, lifelong developmental disability that typically appears during early childhood and can impact a person's social skills, communication, relationships, and self-regulation. Autism is defined by a certain set of behaviors and is a, quote, spectrum condition that affects people differently and to varying degrees. There is no known single cause of autism. And as we currently understand autism, the core features are persistent differences in communication, interpersonal relationships, and social interaction across different environments. And what this can look like is being nonverbal or having atypical speech patterns, having trouble understanding nonverbal communication, difficulty making and keeping friends, difficulty maintaining typical back and forth conversation style. And restricted and repetitive behavior patterns and interests. And what this can look like is repeating sounds or phrases, repetitive movements, preference for sameness and difficulty with transition or routine, rigid or highly restricted and intense interests, extreme sensitivity to or significantly lower sensitivity to various sensory stimuli. And if you've read this book and Perhaps through our synopsis, we got a lot of pieces of this. You'll see that our character has a lot of these characteristics. So I also think it's important to point out that our main character today doesn't just have a variation of autism, but he also has what's known as savant syndrome. So I'm going to talk about savant syndrome now. 
And savant syndrome is a condition in which someone with significant mental disabilities demonstrates certain abilities far in excess of average. The skills at which savants excel at are generally related to memory. This may include a rapid calculation, artistic ability, map making, or a musical ability. Usually just one special skill is present although our character has a few. He has rapid calculation and musical ability at the very least, and a perfect memory. So those with the condition generally have a neurodevelopmental disorder such as autism spectrum disorder or have a brain injury. And about half the cases are associated with autism and may be known as autistic savants. While the condition usually becomes apparent in childhood, some cases may develop later in life. The condition, of course, is very rare. One estimate is that it affects about one in a million people. Cases of female savants are even less common than those of males. The first medical account of the condition, now this is cool, was in 1783. Wow. Among those with autism, one in 10 to 200 have savant syndrome to some degree. It is estimated that there are fewer than 100 savants with extraordinary skills currently living. Wow. So let's talk about that 1783 case because how cool is it that we have that information? Right? That's really cool. <laughs> I know. So this is coming from a paper titled The Savant Syndrome, An Extraordinary Condition, A Synopsis Past, Present, and Future by Daryl A. Treffert. So he says in his paper, quote, Savant Syndrome, with its island of genius, has a long history. The first account of Savant Syndrome is in a scientific paper appeared in the German psychology journal Nothi Saton in 1783, describing the case of Jedediah Buxton, a lightning calculator with an extraordinary memory. Rush, in 1789, the father of American psychiatry, also provided one of the earliest reports when he described the lightning calculating ability of Thomas Fuller, who could comprehend scarcely anything, either theoretical or practical, more complex than counting. However, when Fuller was asked how many seconds a man had lived who was 70 years old, 17 days, and 12 hours old, he gave the correct answer of 2,210,500,800 seconds in 90 seconds, even correcting for the 17 leap years included. Dang. I know, right? <laughs> However, the first scientific description of savant syndrome took place in London in 1887, which I believe is the same year our book takes place. We're definitely in the 1880s in this book. I think we're in the early 1880s. Now, we have to be a little bit later, and I'll tell you why, because there's a, unless we're wrong about when the Pirates of Penzance came to London. so They may have switched that up, because... At least I remember the second book takes place in 1883, and it's after this book takes okay, place. Okay, well, 1883 would work, potentially, for Pirates of Penzance, I believe. I have that information later, so, <laughs> so don't worry. We'll get back around to it. So the first description of Savant Syndrome took place in London in 1887, when Dr. J. Langdon Down gave that year's prestigious Letzomian Lecture at the Invitation of the Medical Society of London. In that lecture, he reflected on his 30 years as a physician at the Earlswood Hospital and described, quote, an interesting class of cases for which the term, quote, idiot savants has been given, and of which a considerable number have come under my observation. He then presented 10 cases of persons with, quote, special faculties that read exactly similar to cases now 121 years later. One of his patients had memorized the rise and fall of the Roman Empire verbatim and could recite it 
backwards or forwards. Other children with remarkable skill, but quote, had a comparative blank in all other faculties of mind. Still, other children showed musical ability, arithmetical genius, or precise timekeeping skill, all of which, when taken together, comprised a clinical picture of savant syndrome, special skills plus phenomenal memory, which unfailingly reoccurs in reports to this day. In 1887, idiot was an accepted classification for persons with an IQ below 25, and savant, or knowledgeable person, was derived from the French word savoir, meaning to know. Down joined those words together and coined the term idiot savant, by which the condition was generally known over the next century. While descriptive, the term was actually a misnomer, since almost all cases occur in persons with an IQ higher than 40. In the interest of accuracy and dignity, savant syndrome has now been substituted and is widely used. Savant syndrome is preferable to autistic savant since only approximately 50% of persons with savant syndrome have autistic spectrum disorder, and the other 50% have some other form of CNS injury or disease. So now on to Autism Awareness Month. In 1970, the Autism Society launched an ongoing nationwide effort to promote autism awareness and assure that all affected by autism are able to achieve the highest quality of life possible. In 1972, the Autism Society launched the first annual National Autistic Children's Week, which evolved into National Autism Awareness Month. Each year, they continue efforts to spread awareness, promote acceptance, and ignite change. The Autism Society of America, the nation's oldest leading grassroots autism organization, is proud to celebrate National Autism Awareness Month this April with its new Celebrate Differences campaign. Designed to build a better awareness of the signs, symptoms, and realities of autism, hashtag Celebrate Differences focuses on providing information and resources for communities to be more aware of autism, promote acceptance, and be more inclusive in everyday life. The Autism Society recognizes that the prevalence of autism in the United States has risen from 1 in 125 children in 2010 to 1 in 59 in 2020. Recognizing this continued increase, the goal is to further increase awareness about autism signs, symptoms, and opportunities through information and referrals, events, printable and digital resources, and community partnerships with businesses and organizations dedicated to building inclusive experiences. To learn more, visit www.autismawarenessmonth.org or follow hashtag Celebrate Differences on social media. So that is a lot of information, but I thought it was all really interesting and really cool. And I feel like that distinction between autism and, you know, savant syndrome is really important. So yes, I wanted to share it. Absolutely. But now we're going to get into the nitty gritty of our book, mm-hmm. which first we have to look at our main tropes. Yes. So our main tropes are, it was a little difficult for me to like find a like strong, strong trope here. So I kind of made some up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we have stealing a woman from another, uh, a widow who does not want to remarry. Then we do have a marriage of convenience. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, We've got some vengeance going on here. And we do have a whole lot of misunderstandings. Yes, we do. Which is, I know, I know. I think two books ago, maybe we were like misunderstandings. Although <laughs> I know we were, but misunderstand. But I think the misunderstandings in this book—they're so different. They're so different because <laughs> they're not. They're, they're I not know. We'll get stupid into it. misunderstandings, but they really anyway. aren't. I know. So our main characters today 
are Lord Ian McKenzie and Mrs. Beth Ackerley. So shall we get into it? We shall. All right, everybody. Lord Ian McKenzie is a highly respected collector of Ming bowls, not vases, bowls. And today he's looking at a bowl available for purchase from Sir Lyndon Mather. Mather is engaged to be married, and the sale of this bowl will fund his wedding present. Mackenzie offers 1,000 guineas, and Mather is displeased. He paid 1,500 for it. Ian must explain himself. Quote, There was nothing to explain. Ian's rapidly calculating mind had taken in every asset and flaw in 10 seconds flat. If Mather couldn't tell the value of his pieces, he had no business collecting porcelain. There were at least five fakes in the glass cases on the other side of Mather's collection room, and Ian wagered Mather had no idea. So Ian stays firm, even when Mather explains the need for the marriage gift. Ian wonders why not just give her the bowl itself, but Mather's laughs at that, for women don't know the first thing about porcelain. (laughs) Besides, she is a beautiful woman and rich in her own right. And Ian wonders what would bring a woman like that to marry Mather, for Mather is a bounder of the first order with a house of kept woman who is sent to his rare proclivities. And perhaps thinking it would sway Ian to a better price, Mather invites Ian to meet his fiancée at the opera that night. But of course, that doesn't work, and Ian stays firm, and finally they do agree on 1,000 guineas. And then, as the deal is finalized, quote, Ian set aside the brandy and dipped his pen in the ink. He bent down to write and caught sight of the droplet of black ink hanging on the nib in a perfect round spear. He stared at the droplet, something inside him singing at the perfection of the ball of ink, the glistening viscosity that held it suspended from the nib. The sphere was perfect, shining, a wonder. He wished he could savor its perfection forever, but he knew that in a second it would fall from the pen and be lost. If his brother Mac could paint something this exquisite, this beautiful, Ian would treasure it. He had no idea how long he'd sat there studying the droplet of ink until he heard Mather say, Damnation, he really is mad, isn't he? The droplet fell down, 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 to splash on the page, gone to its death in a spatter of black ink. I'll write it out for you then, my lord. And so Curry, Ian's faithful valet, helps Ian seal the deal and they leave with the box. However, in the carriage, Ian has a task for Curry, quote, Find out everything you can about Mrs. Ackerley, a widow now betrothed to Sir Lyndon Mather. Tell me about it tonight. Oh, I? Why are we so interested in the right bastard's fiancé? Ian ran his fingertips lightly over the box again. I want to know if she's exquisite porcelain or a fake. Later that night at the opera, Beth Ackerley herself is having a nice time. Her fiancé is handsome and charming and an excellent choice for a second husband. She'd had love and she'd had drama in her life, and while Lyndon Mather wasn't terribly exciting, he promised to be mellow, which was ideal for her. And in her box, Beth is first introduced to our hero as a very close friend of Mather's and a brother to the Duke of Kilmorgan. And as she first glances upon him, quote, her entire world stopped. For Ian is big, muscular, and hard, but, quote, his eyes set Ian McKenzie apart from every other person Beth had ever met. And she knows instantly, recognizes from the way her body responds to him, that this man, quote, there would be drama aplenty. She sensed that in the restlessness of his body, the large, warm hand that gripped her own, the eyes that wouldn't quite meet hers. Should she pity the woman those eyes finally rested on or envy her? 
Beth and Ian's conversation is brief, their eye contact non-existent, and Ian soon takes his leave. But he deftly slides a note into the elbow of her glove and whispers, read it out of his sight. And after he does leave, Mather gives us some background on Ian. He professes him mad as a hatter and tells Beth, and the reader, that Ian had lived in a private asylum most his life, and his brother the Duke had sprung him. In fact, though, the entire family is scandalous. Beth mulls this information over, because Ian had not seemed entirely mad to her. And finally, once Mather takes his leave, Beth is able to read the note. And it is shocking to the extreme. It reads, I wish to tell you that Mather keeps a house just off the strand near Temple Bar, where he has women meet him several at a time. He calls the women his sweeties and begs them to use him as their slave. The letter then concludes with, I have listed five of the women he regularly meets, should you wish to have them questioned, or I can arrange for you to speak with the Duke. And this news isn't something that Beth can really take sitting down, so she escapes the box for the hall. What purpose could Ian have had to tell her all this? What motivation? Why should he care about a lowly man like Sir Lyndon? And as she hurries down the hall, a hand snakes out and pulls her into another box with a, careful, come with me. Of course, it's Ian. And once Beth has gathered her wits and had a sip of whiskey, she asks, what did you mean by this, my lord? Ian insists he meant what he wrote, and Beth returns that perhaps it's a collector's dispute. Ian replies that Mather isn't much of a collector, and there is no envy there. He tells her that Mather is a blind idiot who sees only her fortune, and that Mather is actually quite in debt. So Beth now admits that she is in an untenable position. Why? Ian asks. You are rich. You can do whatever you like. But after a moment of silence, Ian continues abruptly with, You could always marry me. (laughs) Beth blinked. I beg your pardon. I said you could marry me. I don't give a damn about your fortune. My lord, why on earth should you ask me to marry you? Because you have beautiful eyes. How do you know? You've not once looked at them. I know. So they argue a bit longer until Beth finally concedes that it was all very nice of him to offer. And Ian keeps insisting that it would be a good idea. So she tries another tactic. If I said yes, what would you do? She asked in true curiosity. Balk and try to talk your way out of it? I would find a bishop, pry a license out of him, and make him marry us tonight. (laughs) Ian is very direct. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Beth laughs this off, but Ian again asks yes or no, and she argues that he knows nothing about her. But of course, Ian knows everything about her. His extremely resourceful curry has been researching. He knows of her aristocratic French father, and he knows of her mother, who was the daughter of an English squire. He knows of their elopement, her mother's disownment, and their eventual fall into poverty. She and her mother had been forced to work in a workhouse since she had been 10. She had met her vicar husband when she was 19, and he died a year later of fever. Then a Mrs. Barrington had hired her as a paid companion, and upon her death had left Beth her fortune. Quote, Beth blinked as the drama of her life unfolded in brief sentences. Is this Curry a Scotland Yard detective? He is my valet. Oh, of course, a valet. She fanned herself vigorously. He looks after your clothes, shaves you, and investigates the past of obscure young women. Perhaps you should be warning Sir Lyndon about me instead of the other way around. I wanted to discover whether you were genuine or false. She had no idea what that meant. 
You have your answer then. I'm certainly no diamond in the rough, more like a pebble that's been polished a little. Ian touched a lock of hair that had drifted to her forehead. You are real. Ooh, the heat between them is real too. And the conversation continues as Ian asks if she loved her husband. With all my heart. I wouldn't expect love from you. I can't love you back. Beth plied her fan from her hot face, heart stumbling. Hardly flattering, my lord, for a woman to hear a man won't fall in love with her. She likes to believe she will be the center of his abject devotion. Not won't. I can't love you. I beg your pardon. I'm incapable of love. I will not offer it to you. Beth wondered what was more heartbreaking, the words themselves or the flat tone of voice with which he delivered them. And after that admission, Ian admits he wants to marry her because he wants to bed her. (laughs) And Beth knows that a true lady should swoon or call him out, but the tension between them is palpable. And she instead leans into his touch and asks, do you? And she realizes that he thinks that she is a respectable lady and therefore he should marry her to get her in bed. She gave a half-hysterical laugh. My dear Lord Ian, do you think that is a bit extreme? Once you've had me in your bed, you'd still be married to me. I plan to bed you more than once. (laughs) Such a good line. (laughs) By now, Beth really knows that she should excuse herself, but she just can't. She knows she shouldn't enjoy passion and sex so much because ladies aren't supposed to. But she is a sensual lady, and this man is awakening parts of her. Mm -hmm. So they continue with her denying and Ian continuing to ask her until finally she does try to take her leave. But Ian can't let her go and asks her to stay and watch the opera with him. And when one aria finishes, he pulls her into a ravishing kiss, which continues with much gusto until they are interrupted by his brother Cameron entering the box. Cameron is looking for his son Daniel, and once he learns that Beth is Mather's fiancé, he corroborates Ian's story, saying, Good on you, Ian, absconding with Mather's fiancé. You do the last a favor. He looked Beth over with bold eyes. You don't want to marry Mather, love. The man's disgusting. And while Beth adjusts to these brash Mackenzies who say things in front of a lady that are hardly proper, and adjusts to the fact that her fiancé isn't the man she thought he was, and adjusts to the feelings that Ian brought out in her, the Mackenzie men plan on a way to get Beth home safely and secretly in Cam's carriage. The next day, while Ian is in the bath, Mather comes barging in in a rage because Beth has thrown him over, which means that Ian has swindled him out of her 100,000 pounds. He's threatening to sue Ian or ruin him, but Ian is nonpulsed. In fact, after he's thrown Mather out, he goes back to thinking about what had his attention in the first place, the letter he'd received that morning from Mrs. Ackerley herself. In it, she had thanked him for his kind intervention and also for, quote, condescending to propose marriage to her, which she had realized was to save her reputation. But she has decided that instead she will simply avoid marriage and travel as a rich widow is entitled to. She's off to Paris, in fact. Bon voyage. And so Ian makes a decision. He's off to Paris as well. Next, we get to meet our villain, Detective Inspector Lloyd Fellows, who seems to have a real bone to pick with the Mackenzies. And this morning, he's had a tip from Lyndon Mather, who was following Ian, that Ian Mackenzie was seen exiting the house of a woman, Lily Martin, who had been found murdered later that day. And then Ian had immediately left for Paris, 
And all of this is eerily similar to a situation that had happened a few years back, where a whore was murdered bloodily and Ian had been immediately removed to Scotland. And of course, Fellows had been the inspector on that case, and so he is extremely happy for this information. Quote, After five long years, he at last saw a chink in the armor that was the Mackenzie family. He would put his finger in the chink and rip their armor to shreds. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Meanwhile, in Paris, Beth's quest to become an artist is going poorly. Though she has supplies and the inspiration in the form of a lovely view from a park, she doesn't quite actually have a clue how to paint or draw. So for a couple of days, she's just sat and stared. But this day, Beth's eye is caught by a man who looks very familiar. But as she looks harder, she realizes that it is not Ian, but as this man looks so strikingly similar to him, she surmises that it must be his brother Mac, who is a famous artist. Eventually, her staring catches his eye, and they strike up a conversation where she quickly admits that she has recently met his brother Ian and had a good interaction with him. This is interesting enough to capture Mac's attention, and he ends up offering to help her learn how to paint. So they are to meet the next day at 2 o'clock to begin. However, to the next day comes and goes without Mac arriving, while grumbling to her maid, an exceptionally beautiful redhead, whom they'd noticed the day before, comes up to the pair to offer some advice about Mac. Quote, If you're waiting for his lordship, Mac Mackenzie, I must tell you that he is extremely unreliable. He might be lying in a meadow, studying the way a horse gallops, or he might have climbed to the top of a church tower to paint the view. I imagine he's forgotten all about his assignation with you, but that is Mac all over. Absent-minded is he, Beth asks. Not so much absent-minded as bloody-minded. Mac does as he pleases, and I thought it only fair that you know right away. Are you his model? Beth didn't really think so, but this was Paris. No, my dear, I'm not his model. I am very unfortunately his wife. And we learn that Mac and Isabella McKenzie are estranged, and they suffered a very public spectacle of a breakup and a long scandal three years past. Beth can see that Isabella is actually hurting despite her strong facade, and hurries to explain that she is a friend of Ian's, lest Isabella continue to get the wrong idea. And the ladies find immediately that they like each other quite a bit, and so begins their friendship. Ian, meanwhile, has arrived in Paris and is staying with Mac, who, after his meeting with Mrs. Ackerley, must know who she is to Ian. Ian, as usual, doesn't mince his words and explains that he asked her to marry him, but she refused. Mac is relieved at that, for he remembers what it was like for him when he eloped with Isabella and their brother Hart, the Duke, had disapproved. But Ian isn't concerned, and he intends to persevere and persuade her. And then the plot gets decidedly thicker. Curry and Ian catch up a bit, and we learn that Lyndon Mather hadn't been lying about seeing Ian at Lily Martin's house that morning, for Curry and Ian are discussing that morning and Lily's murder. Curry had stayed behind after Ian had left for Paris to try to see if he could figure out who had done it, but his inquiries had not been successful. And Ian admits during his discussion with Curry that he had been there and he had seen Lily that morning. Morning. And Curry's only learned that Lily didn't fight her attacker, and he's also gone all the way to Rome to check up on someone, and that someone has been there for a month and has never left. So those are the details we get at this time. Mm-hmm. Later that week, Beth is up at her normal hour in her new lodgings, although her roommate, Isabella, never rises before one. 
She hears someone playing Chopin downstairs and investigates to find Ian. He is a musical prodigy. He mentioned this before at the opera, but he can play a piece note for note after hearing it. But he does not feel like he can capture its soul. But Beth is enamored with his playing and impressed. She tells him so when he finishes. I learned it when I was 11, he said. Quite a prodigy. I don't think I'd even seen a piano when I was 11. I'm sure your teachers were quite impressed. No, I was beaten for it. Beth's smile died. You were punished for learning a piece perfectly? Rather a strange reaction, isn't it? My father called me a liar because I said I'd only heard it once. I told him I didn't know how to lie. So he said, better to be thought a liar because what you've done is unnatural. I'll teach you to never do it again. Beth's throat tightened. That's horrible. I was often beaten. I was disrespectful, evasive, difficult to control. Beth imagined Ian as a boy, his frightened gold eyes looking everywhere but straight at his father, while the man shouted at him, then closing his eyes in pain and fear as the cane came down. And after that revelation, Beth reflects inwardly while Ian plays another piece. It's a sad one, and it moves her. She feels he is wrong about capturing its soul. But he notices that she is sad, and he asks her if she is okay, to which she says, she is, but could he play something happier? Quote, Ian's gaze skimmed past her like a beam of sunlight. I don't know whether a piece is happy or sad. I just know the notes. So they work together to find a happier one, and they have a real moment together on the piano <laughs> bench, because how can you not? <laughs> yeah. Uh, learning a piece from the Pirates of Penzance, which leads to a very steamy kiss, of course, and mm -hmm. some dirty talk, and then they're interrupted by Isabella. <laughs> <laughs> And while she's more than accommodating, this breaks the mood and Ian delivers the message he came here to deliver. Mac would like to begin Beth's drawing lessons in three days after he finishes his painting. But before they part, Ian tells Beth he wants to see her again. And she says she wants the same. In fact, that evening, Beth forgoes any entertainment to instead write a torrid passage in her journal about what she wished she and Ian could have gotten up to that day if they hadn't been interrupted, and what she hopes they'll get to in the future. She finishes her entry with, I want to unbutton my frock for him. I want to unlace my stays and ease them from my body. I want him to touch me as I haven't been touched in years. I ache for it. I do not think of him as Lord Ian Mackenzie, aristocratic brother of a duke and well beyond my reach, not as mad Mackenzie and eccentric people stare at and whisper about. To me, he is simply Ian. Ooh. The same evening, Beth has another gentleman visitor by the name of Detective Inspector Fellows. Beth can immediately tell that Fellows is a bad sort and has it out for the Mackenzies. So after a tense meeting, she sends him on his way. But during their conversation, he does inform her of the murder of Lily Martin and how Ian was seen exiting her house. And oh, does Beth know about the murder five years ago that Ian was also maybe involved in? And oh, again, did you know that Lily Martin had actually worked in that brothel too at the same time? Fellows also seems to have done his research on Beth and knows that her father was no aristo, but rather a fraud. And he knows about that one time her mother had resorted to prostitution and had been caught. So threats laid and pieces of the puzzle haphazardly given, we forge onward. But not too forward, because Ian happens to be at Beth and Isabella's house when Fellows is on his way out. 
And he sees red, knowing that Fellows has told Beth everything and has shoved him up against the wall. Quote, accosting a police officer is an offense. Everything about you is an offense. Ian shoved the man away. Get out. Ian. Beth's voice made him turn. She stood like a flower, fragile and vulnerable, the only color in a world of gray. He'd wanted Beth to remain a part of this sordid business at High Holborn and everything he'd strived to hide the last five years. Beth was unsoiled by it, innocent. Fellows had ruined that. The bloody man ruined everything he touched. Ian didn't want Beth looking at him and wondering what others did, whether Ian had plunged a knife into the warm body of a courtesan, then smeared the walls with her blood. And Ian's thoughts let the reader know that he doesn't think he did it, but wonders sometimes that perhaps he had done it in a blind rage. But he also remembers other things from that night, secrets he'd never revealed. So we know there's more to this mystery. After Fellows is gone, the pair begin to talk. Ian is so upset that Beth knows these things, and she's simply waiting for denial or for him to explain that he's got a valet or coachman who can vouch for him. But Ian is lost and starts to pull away, insisting she really shouldn't have anything to do with the Mackenzies because, quote, we break whatever we touch. Beth doesn't give up that easily, though, insisting that she believes him. Quote, you're afraid that Fellows has turned me away from you. He hasn't. He obviously has a bee in his bonnet. He said himself he has no evidence, and there will never be a case against you. But Ian can't forget anything, literally, because he has a perfect memory, so it is very hard for him to let things go. But Beth has calmed him, so he does make some admissions. He admits that he did not see the first courtesan. Sally Tate die, and he didn't drive the scissors into Lily Martin, and he knows it was scissors because he had gone to visit her that morning and found her dead. But he had failed her because he had been trying to protect Lily all this time, and now he's afraid he won't be able to protect Beth from fellows using her. But Beth is a strong woman and continues to gently persuade Ian that she will be fine. And we get some more backstory here. Quote, You'd take the word of a madman, he asked. You're not a madman. I was put into the asylum for a reason. I couldn't convince the commission I was sane. Ian turned away from her, forcing her to let go of his arm. When I was first released from the asylum, I wouldn't speak for three months. He heard her stop behind him. Oh. I hadn't forgotten how. I simply didn't want to. I didn't know it distressed my brothers until they told me. I can't read hints from others. A person has to tell me things plainly. She gave him a shaky smile, which is why you don't laugh at my little jokes. I thought I'd lost my knack for it. I learn what to do by watching others, like applauding at the opera when the rest of the audience starts. It's like learning a foreign language, and I can't follow a conversation when I'm in a crowd. But Beth is far from deterred. In fact, she replies with, My dear Ian, then we are birds of a feather. Mrs. Barrington had to teach me how to behave in society from the ground up, and I still don't know all the rules. For instance, do you know it's considered vulgar to eat ices with a spoon? One must use a fork, which seems rather ridiculous. The most difficult is to leave a few morsels of food on the plate, so as not to seem overzealous in eating. I had so many hungry days in my youth that I consider this beyond perplexing. And with the mood diffused, Beth gathers her courage to ask a question that she must know the answer to. Would Ian be interested in having a liaison with her? Of the carnal relations kind? On occasion, when they mutually agree? 
Um, Ian says yes. In <laughs> fact, they'll start now before she has second thoughts. And they do not have encounter number one, but they have an incredibly steamy makeout sesh that includes one of the sexiest he's I've ever read. And actually, it's very true. <laughs> right? I mean, like... A love bite. I mean, can we just call them love bites? Because it's yeah. way better than it's a hickey. It's way better than a hickey, yes. But, like, I've never thought a hickey was sexy until I read this passage. <laughs> <laughs> and though Ian wants to continue, he's also playing the long game here. So he somehow separates them gently and takes his leave, of course letting her know that he'll get her a message soon. But he is far from unaffected from their kiss, quote, he would soon arrange it so he never had to leave. He'd marry her for a very basic reason, to have her with him every night, every day, every afternoon, and every time in between. He walked down the boulevard, something in him awakening and breaking free. After this scene, we have some development about Isabella and Mac that we're going to breeze over a bit because they do have their own book. But Isabella had left Mac because she loved him too much and she still loves him. So obviously they have much to work out and we've seen already that Mac is definitely not unaffected by Isabella. An entire week passes without any word from Ian after their last meeting. Beth has learned that Ian helps his brothers with their accounts and investments, so perhaps he has been busy? But regardless, she is agitated. She finally hears from Ian while she is at a ball. A note tells her, most urgent I see you. Top of the house. First door. Ian. And when she arrives, he tells her they must hurry. There isn't much time. But what he actually means is that she can't be away for too long or she'll be noticed because he'd like to continue their liaison here and now. Yes, in someone else's house. And yes, without a bed. <laughs> And so they have encounter number one, where Ian takes a trip under Beth's skirts and does scandalous things with his tongue that she didn't even know were possible. Twice! <laughs> and Ian leaves her love silly and doesn't even ask her to reciprocate. He's just like, there you go. Have fun. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and the next day, Beth is out for a walk in the park when Fellows runs into her. He tries again to turn her, but this time with a different tactic, offering her marriage to him to save her reputation. But of course, Beth is having none of it. So Fellows gets angry and starts insisting again that Ian murdered those two women and he'll find a way to prove it. And however, this is all very unfortunate because Ian and Mac happen upon them, and Ian flies into a rage, a rage so strong that Curry and Mac can barely pull Ian off fellows. And even once they do, Ian continues to scream at him, face purple, tears streaming down his face. A crowd has gathered to watch the spectacle, and after the Mackenzie brothers offer one more threat to fellows to leave them alone, they leave. And Ian is left to contemplate that he's lost Beth now after flying into a rage in front of her. He damns the demons inside of him. And Mac morosely supplies, we're Mackenzie's. We don't get happy endings. But as usual, Beth is not dissuaded easily. And since Ian abruptly left the park, the next morning she goes to Mac's studio to find him and to apologize to both the brothers. Beth feels partly responsible for fellows approaching her again. Her curiosity had gotten the better of her when he started telling his stories, so she hadn't shut down the conversation. So she and Ian discuss everything that fellows said to her, including the proposal. And Beth wonders if Ian will forgive her, but he insists there is nothing to forgive and is amazed that she is here after seeing him that way in the park. And they discuss that too, quote, 
It stays away most of the time, but when I saw him touch you, my Beth, it rose like a fire. I frightened you. You did, rather, but not in the way he meant. Beth's father had been prone to violent rages when drunk. With Ian, she'd not wanted to flee. That he could have hurt fellows, she had no doubt. But she hadn't been afraid Ian would hurt her. She'd known he wouldn't. She'd been more afraid that he'd hurt himself or that a passing policeman would decide to arrest him. Beth rested her cheek against the stiff white fabric of her shirt front. You told me not to protect you, but I don't want anything to happen to you. Beth also gives Ian a pin, which is engraved on the back, in friendship. But this leads to conversations of love, with Ian asking, quote, What is it like? His words were so low she barely caught them. Explain to me what loving feels like, Beth. I want to understand. This is a ridiculously hard question, and of course, the answer takes a few pages. Ian admits, quote, I can feel desire and wanting. I find you beautiful, and I want you. She warmed. I must say, you are quite good for my pride. But when you don't desire a woman, you feel nothing for her? Nothing at all. Beth heaved a sigh. And that, Ian Mackenzie, is why I said you'll break my heart. And while they're still miles apart, they're somehow closer than when they started, as there is more understanding between them. And that emotional closeness leads to encounter number two, where Beth is fully unclothed and Ian teaches her how to pleasure herself against him, again foregoing his own pleasure. Quote, one night, he would have her. By then, Beth would want him so much he could make her his forever. Ian didn't understand love by his own admission, but he knew having Beth in his life was something worth striving for. She'd said no the first time he'd asked her to marry him. She'd explained in her sensible manner that she had no inclination to marry, but he would change her mind. Ian Mackenzie had learned to be good at getting what he truly wanted. And in a delightful move, we jump from encounter two straight to encounter three, because encounter number three is described via a delectively toured passage in Beth's diary, which is an encounter in the carriage where Beth finally gets to reciprocate by going down, her first time ever, on Ian. They both enjoy the experience immensely. But after this lovely reprieve, we move on to a new plot twist. It seems that Ian's brother, Hart, has discovered some gossip in a French newspaper about Ian and a Mrs. A. And Hart is immediately upset and ready to protect Ian, or perhaps Ian's fortune and perceived vulnerabilities, as always. Plus, Hart is Ian's family, and he knows what Ian is capable of. So he decides that whatever motives this Mrs. A has, they can't be good, and he readies to be able to leave for Paris at a moment's notice. Also around this time, Ian reflects that it's been a good while since he's either heard from or seen Inspector Fellows. While Curry thinks this might be a good thing, Ian is wary. And that week, Ian and Beth accompany Isabella on an outing to a den of iniquity, which turns out to be an illegal gambling hall. Although Ian doesn't like crowds, he is calmed somewhat by Beth's presence and by helping her bet smartly as he calculates mathematical odds for her. They're having a delightful time learning more about each other and basking in each other's company when the casino is raided! Ian and Beth race out a back door, and while Beth worries for Isabella, Ian assures her that Mac was actually there, so he will look out for her. <laughs> and very quickly, it dawns on them that this must have been the work of fellows. 
and it's raining, of course, so the pair are soaked and scurrying down alleys to avoid any police blockades. And to avoid fellows, they must hide where he wouldn't think to look. And, aha, luckily they spot a pension, which is also a hotel, where they are able to secure the best room and a bath to wait out the storm. And there's only one bed in this hotel room, so you know we're about to have encounter number four. (laughs) which starts with a practical bath, but for the first time, they are both unclosed, and so it soon moves to the bed, where a very loving and long-awaited coupling finally occurs. And while there are lots of feelings between them, rest assured, there's also plenty of steam and body talk. Ian just loves to talk about, like, he just loves to tell her what's going to (laughs) happen. He's very direct um, which is like part of just him as a character and probably like a result of his autism. But yeah, man, it ends up being very sexy on the page. <laughs> oh, yeah. And when Ian climaxes, quote, in that moment, Ian opened his eyes like twin sons coming into view and let his gaze directly meet Beth's. And Beth nearly loses her breath. This is the first time he's fully looked at her since they've met. And too soon he turns away. But the passion isn't dimmed and they begin again. (laughs) The next morning, they begin to figure out what their next steps are. And we learn some more about Ian. He insists that Curry won't be worried because sometimes he disappears and Curry is used to that. Quote, Beth studied him. Why do you disappear? Sometimes it gets too much for me. Trying to follow what people say, trying to remember what I'm supposed to do so people will think I'm normal. Sometimes the rules are hard. So I go. And later in the morning, Beth awakens again to see Ian standing by the window, but he motions for her to remain silent and informs her that Inspector Fellows is watching the house, and he's brought along some police. But Ian has already been working on his plan to get them out of here, and now Curry's arrived with fresh clothes for both of them. And Beth dresses, assuming they'll be fleeing out the back then, but she is mistaken, for shortly two new guests join them. Mac and a priest. Because Ian won't be having them leave out the back door. No, they will be leaving out the front, and fellows won't be able to touch them for lewd behavior if they're married. And Beth immediately protests. And Mac immediately protests her protestation, saying, Why the hell not? Ian likes you, you get on, and he needs a wife. Beth squeezed her hands together. Yes, but perhaps I don't need a husband. (laughs) Go back. (laughs) Yeah. Ian, though, requests to speak with Beth alone, and Mac agrees, exiting and saying, Sorry, I'm a little on edge. Marry him. Do. We need at least one sensible person in this family. (laughs) Ian argues that if Beth becomes his wife, Fellow won't be able to touch her. Hart's protection, his whole family's protection, will extend to her. Beth argued that this hasn't stopped Fellows from harassing Ian, now has it? Plus, Beth decides to spill that her father wasn't actually an Aristo, but Ian, of course, already knows that and doesn't care one lick. She keeps trying to protest. She's not good enough for a Duke's son if the newspaper is found out. But Ian protests, saying, we don't fit in, you and me. We're both oddities no one knows what to do with. He took her hand, pressed her palm to his, then laced their fingers through each other's. We fit. He was saying... We are adrift, and no one wants us, not the real us. We might as well drift together. Not please marry me, Beth. I love you. But finally, she can't protest anymore when she remembers a certain moment, and she realizes that she is lost. Quote, She remembered the breathless moment when he'd actually looked at her when they'd made love. His eyes had been so beautiful, fixed on her as though she were the only person in the world, the only person who mattered. 
What would she give to have him look at her like that again? Everything she had. Blast you, Ian McKenzie, she whispered. (laughs) And so they are married and walk out together to fend off fellows. He is there to arrest Ian for abducting Mrs. Ackerley. But of course, Mrs. Ackerley isn't there. Lady Ian McKenzie is. Quote, You lost that round, fellows, Max said, clapping the expector on a soggy shoulder. Better luck next time. The inspector's eyes were hard as agates, and Ian knew they'd thwarted the man only briefly. The battle had been won, but the war raged on. The newlyweds immediately leave for Scotland and travel there by train, where they briefly have encounter number five to try to distract Ian from his distress at confinement on the train. And while it's a fun romp, he's still distressed afterwards. A day later, they arrive at the family's seat, Kilmorgan, which is an incredibly enormous house, if you could even call it that. They are greeted and introduced to all the staff, and then Beth is told she'll be led to her rooms. Oh, and Ian, the Duke is waiting to see you in the drawing room. Neither had expected the Duke to be there, but he is. And Ian knows Hart will want to meet Beth, so he invites her along. Of course, this meeting does not go well. Hart is cold and doesn't even address Beth, instead asking, was there really no other way? Fellows would have found some means to use her or turned her into an excuse to arrest me. The man's a pig. Hart's stare came back to Beth. She was once a lady's companion. Why did Isabella befriend her? Beth pulled herself away from Ian and walked forward, sticking out her hand. I'm very well, thank you so much for inquiring. The journey was tiring, but uneventful. No problems on the lines and no Finian bombs at any of the stations. And Beth isn't done. As Hart continues to address Ian, she continues to pick at him. Finally, he addresses her to tell you if she did recall, he did not send for her. And they start to bicker some more until finally Beth is willing to relent and let Hart talk to Ian alone. However, Ian doesn't want that. They can talk at dinner after he sees Beth settled himself. Quote, we have made servants to help her. I want to do it. Hart gave up, but Beth could see it wrangled. The gong goes at 7.45 and the meal is served at 8. We dress formally, Mrs. Ackerley. Don't be late. Beth slid her hand through Ian's, trying to hide her nervousness. Call me Beth, please, she said. I am no longer Mrs. Ackerley and have become, to our mutual astonishment, your sister. Dinner is fairly uneventful and afterwards, while Ian reads a treaty for Hart, Beth takes a turn around the garden. However, Hart comes there to threaten her a bit, insisting she's bamboozled Mac, Isabella, and Ian, but he won't be fooled. Beth replies, quote, I remember telling Ian quite plainly that I had no interest in marrying again, and then there I was, signing a license and repeating that I'd be with him till death do us part. I believe Ian bamboozled me. that's such a good one it is but Hart thinks that Ian is vulnerable and Beth must have been after him for his money as he's an easy mark and he continues raging and saying that he'll have the marriage annulled Beth gives as good as she receives until she realizes the real problem quote Beth summoned the courage to look straight into Hart's golden eyes can you not consider that perhaps I fell in love with him Deeply, dramatically, foolishly in love, she thought. No. Why not? Hart drew a breath but didn't speak. A muscle twitched in his jaw. I see, Beth said softly. You believe he's mad and don't think any woman could love that. Ooh. But they remain at odds, Hart insisting that he'll send for the solicitor in the morning and Beth insisting that she'll never hurt Ian. But Ian has been listening and he's not happy with Hart. Quote, 
Ian took one step closer to Hart. Though he kept his eyes averted, there was no mistaking the anger in his stance and his voice. She is my wife under my protection. The only way I will let you do anything against this marriage is if you declare me a lunatic again. My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually they part for the evening with a truce of sorts, at least for now. And they head to their own quarters for their first night as husband and wife. And after a conversation about Ian's perfect memory and how it's a bit of a curse for him, Ian makes another confession, quote, You being with me makes it stop. It's like the Ming bowls. When I touch them and feel them, everything stops. Nothing matters. You are the same. That's why I brought you here, to keep you with me, where you can please make everything stop. Beth stared up at him, her blue eyes wet. Tell me how. Stay with me. Beth insists that she will. She even promises she won't leave him. And this leads us into encounter number six, which is hot and heavy, and is the beginning of their newly wedded seclusion. They are finally brought out of their suite of rooms a few days later when Cam and his son Daniel arrive, who are full of good cheer and happy energy. And so life settles into a pace at Kilmorgan with Cam and Ian teaching Beth how to ride and having family dinners together. Hart and Beth still come to odds, especially at the way Hart seems to use Ian's brain, but Ian insists that he likes helping his brother. But the brothers have noticed a change in Ian, and in fact, Daniel let slip that the previous night at dinner was the first time that anyone had ever heard Ian laugh since before his time in the asylum. So there's movement. Mm-hmm. One day on a ride with Cam, Beth had, ends up heading out on her own when Cam's horse throws a shoe. And when she nears the folly they were approaching, she overhears Hart and Ian discussing the murder of Sally Tate. There are some juicy tidbits, but only one that hurts Beth. Ian admits that Fellows tried to persuade Beth to spy for him, and while he doesn't think she's a double agent, a wife can't go to the witness box against her husband, now can she? Beth makes it back to the house safely after hearing this, but can't contain her grief from Ian when he asks if she is all right later. So she just has out with it. Please explain to me what happened that night at High Holborn. Please, I need to know. But Ian doesn't want to. He doesn't want her to look at him knowing what he knows. Quote, Do you trust me so little? With this, I trust no one, except Hart, especially not Hart. And then she explains that she had overheard them earlier that day, and she had overheard his comment about the witness stand, quote, I heard you tell Hart you married me to keep fellows from using you against me. Is that true? She bleated a short laugh. Of course it's true. You don't know how to lie. Help me understand, Beth pleaded. Tell me why you're so afraid, why you'd do this to me. I want to help you find out what happened, help you put it to rest. No, 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 leave it be. How can I? It's tearing you apart. It's tearing me apart. If you tell me, if we think about it, maybe we can decide what really happened. But Ian is adamant that Beth stay out of it. That's why Lily Martin died, because she knew too much. And if Beth doesn't stop meddling, then maybe he won't be able to protect her too. Ian is barely holding on, and he begins down another path, wrestling with his emotions when they begin to talk about marriage. Quote, I can never give you what he gave you, Ian's chest hurt. You loved him, and I know that can never be between us. You're wrong, she whispered. I love you, Ian. He pressed his clenched fist to his breastbone. There's nothing to love. Nothing. I am insane. My father knew it. Hart knows it. You can't nurse me back to health. I have my father's rages, and you can never be sure what I'll do. He broke off, his headache beating at him. He rubbed his temple furiously, angry at the pain. 
And Ian can't really process it all. His body wants Beth, and he allows this weakness for a rough kiss, but then he throws her off him and storms out the house and into the garden, where he proceeds to force a gardener to load one pistol for him while he shoots another, over and over and over. Curry tries to get him to stop, then Cam and Hart are there too, but no one can get him to stop until finally Beth is there. Her voice breaks the cycle, and quote, Beth's warm tone floated to him, and her cool hand rested on his. The world came rushing back. It was dimmer now, twilight having taken place of bright afternoon. The undergardener sobbed at his side, dropping the empty pistol and pressing his hands to his face. Ian's arms ached. He slowly unclenched the pistol that Curry eased out of his hand and found his palms blistered raw. Beth touched his face. Ian. He loved how she said his name. She spoke the syllables gently, her voice always soft, caressing. Heart loomed up behind her, but Ian dissolved into Beth. He slid his arms around her waist and buried his face in her neck. And while Ian is able to settle for the night, the next morning he is gone. And as he's known to wander when things get to be too much for him, Beth decides to take advantage of his brief absence and get some stuff done in London that she wants to do. Curry does not like this because what if Ian comes back and finds her gone? But Beth insists she will be back before he is and leaves with her maid. And also her new nephew, Daniel McKenzie, who convinces her that he should get to go too. <laughs> she does send one telegram ahead, though, to a one Detective Inspector Fellows. Hmm. Ian is out in the wild with a friend of his who used to work at the manor, but has become somewhat of a hermit. He cools off quickly and can't stop thinking of Beth. He realizes that there's quite a pull to go back home, and after only a day, he returns. In London, Beth meets with Inspector Fellas. She just can't leave the High Holborn situation alone because she knows how it's tearing Ian apart. She has decided to take the matter into her own hands and work to figure out the truth, knowing that Ian is not the culprit. So she asks Fellas to tell her everything he knows about the murder and leave nothing out. Then she will share what she's learned. So we learn that there were five gentlemen present at Mrs. Palmer's salon at High Holborn. And the other three gentlemen, though, Fellows doesn't suspect because they were respectable. Quote, Visiting a brothel is respectable, the vicar's widow asks with her eyebrows raised. <laughs> Beth is great. <laughs> yes. There are some conflicting stories of when Hart and Ian entered and exited from the ladies and gents and the Mackenzie servants. And by the time that Fellows got to interview Ian himself, two weeks later, Ian couldn't remember. But as Ian remembers everything, Beth's heart sinks. However, she stands strong because Ian can't lie, and he hasn't admitted to the murder. So she feels that Fellows, in his vindictiveness, has let the real murderer get away. Fellows is still puffed up about how terrible the Mackenzies are, though, and how they'll be the death of Beth, so she finally asks Fellows to leave, and decides that since he won't do things properly, she is going to the East End, which is where High Holborn was and where she used to live with her vicar husband, to make inquiries on her own. Meanwhile, back in Scotland, Ian returns to find Beth gone, and while Curry explains that she hasn't left him, just gone to London for a bit, Ian is terrified and sets off immediately. Cam in tow, as Daniel's gone with her, and is probably, quote, making her life a misery. The brothers arrive in London while Beth is out detectiving, and are about to follow in pursuit when Beth and Daniel return. Ian is basically beside himself at this point, and drags Beth inside for a chat. She tells him, Everything that he asks. She met 
fellows. She was making inquiries. And Ian, of course, is so upset. Quote, don't you understand? If you find out too much, I can't protect you. You could be transported or hanged if you knew too much. Why on earth would I be transported because your brother's friend Stevenson or his mistress, Mrs. Palmer, murdered a... She trailed off, her face going still. And while Beth contemplates silently for a moment, she realizes something very important. Oh, Ian, you think Hart did this, don't you? And that is the reason that Ian hasn't wanted to think about it. Because if he figures out that Hart committed the murder, which is what he suspects, he won't be able to lie about it. And finally, Ian fills in all of the missing pieces. How Sally Tate had been boasting about blackmailing Hart. How Hart had asked him to spy on Sally. How he'd walked in on Hart and Sally having rough sex together that night. And how Sally had threatened Hart with a knife. But then Hart had gotten the knife and pressed her throat with his hands. But Hart was into rough play, and Ian explains that when you cut off the air, a climax is more intense. And Ian didn't see Hart kill her. He simply returned later to find Sally dead. And Hart had also seen Sally dead before Ian did, which is why Hart had run out of the house after that, because he couldn't risk being there when the police came for his career. But Beth thinks that Hart couldn't have done it for, quote, If he had decided to kill her, he'd have made certain Ian was far away before he did the dreadful deed. He'd have avoided involving Ian no matter what. Ian had also hid Lily Martin afterwards because Lily had seen too much. He wanted her to stay safe from Hart, so if he hid her, she could live. But now he thinks that Hart was the one who found Lily. And Ian can't let it go. He thinks it was Hart. Because on the night Sally died, Hart had looked so much like their father. And then we learn the real horrible truth of Ian's past. When Ian had been just nine and in the wrong place at the wrong time, he saw his father strangle, shake, and kill his mother in a rage. His father continued to rage and shake Ian, yelling at him that he would tell no one. He had to lie. And the next morning, he had been taken to London and condemned a lunatic and been put into an asylum thereafter. Ian worries that Hart is as ruthless as their father, and Beth still thinks he is wrong, because Hart deeply cares for Ian. Beth insists that finding out the truth would help Ian and Hart, but Ian pleads with her to stop, and Beth relents and says that she will stop. However, quote, as he slid his lips over hers, it didn't occur to him that she'd given up a shade too easily. And Beth wakes up later that night next to Ian, after they had made love, but not too much is described, so I guess it's not an encounter. (laughs) And she knows that she loves him too much to stop. So she dresses and heads downstairs, and luckily, an informant she was hoping to hear from is there now. Sylvia had worked with both Lucy and Sally at High Holborn for a time, and she has two juicy pieces for the puzzle. First... Yes, Mrs. Palmer had been Hart's mistress, and he'd bought her the house. She was older than he was, but they'd been together for so many years, and Mrs. Palmer had truly loved Hart and would do anything for him. And second, Lucy and Sally had been lovers. Plus, Sally had been a bit of a bitch and had made a lot of enemies. Hmm. The plot thickens. It sure does. When Ian awakens to find Beth gone, he realizes what has happened, and he knows where she must be. So he and Cam grab a hansom to High Holborn. When they arrive, they don't find Beth, but they are greeted by Hart. Beth isn't there yet because she'd gone to collect Detective Inspector Fellows on her way. 
And Hart, meanwhile, wants to finally talk about that night with Ian. They never really have, have they? But they end up talking circles around each other with Hart still thinking that Ian did it and Ian still thinking that Hart did it. And finally they get to the whole solution. Quote, Sally told me she could ruin you. She was dreaming, but then she was dead. Oh, God, Ian, Hart said in a near whisper. Is that why you did it? Uh, However, we are interrupted from any sort of reply and the full conversation because Beth and Fellows have arrived. And Beth explains that Fellows is not here to arrest Ian or Hart, but to question Mrs. Palmer more on Beth's request. But then there is a scream and chaos ensues and suddenly everyone is running everywhere. And finally, we find our heroine Beth in pursuit of Mrs. Palmer out the back gate on her own. But Mrs. Palmer is prepared, and when Beth catches her, she stabs Beth. Oh, no! So then we have the chase, where Mrs. Palmer is making her getaway. Beth is dragged along, slowly getting weaker and weaker. And as a good villain, Mrs. Palmer fills in a blank or two. And we realize that Mrs. Palmer didn't actually kill Sally Tate, although she did kill Lily Martin. It had, in fact, been Lily Martin who had killed Sally in a jealous rage. But eventually Ian and the brothers find them, and Mrs. Palmer ends up killing herself in Hart's arms. Dang. I know. (laughs) It was a lot going on, guys. It was was a jam-packed, eventful couple chapters. (laughs) A couple of chapters, which I, you know, we're here for the romance more, for the murder less, so I tried to sum it all up with at least some excitement. (laughs) Okay, it was all very exciting, guys. And then they all return to the Ducal Mansion on Grovenshire Square. Beth takes a long time to recover from her stab wound as a fever sets in, and Ian is at her side the entire time. Quote, By the sixth day, the fever had still not come down. Ian sat by Beth's side, his hand loosely clasping hers, and tasted fear. He was going to lose her. Is this what love feels like, he whispered. I don't like it, my Beth. It hurts too much. But eventually she does recover, and they discuss the details of the night at High Holborn, because Beth had worked hard to solve the mystery, and someone must tell Fellows. (laughs) Ian just doesn't care, because she is alive, and that's what matters. But he's worried about her now that she's on the mend, and mostly stays away as she continues to recover. Finally, though, she takes matters into her own hands to close the last piece of the puzzle. She arranges for Fellows to meet her at the house. And when she next sees Ian, she begs him to stay, and they have encounter number seven, where Beth pleasures Ian this time. And later, Fellows arrives, and Beth explains, quote, I want to ask him something, and since he wouldn't allow me to go out, I had to have him come to me. Fellows admits he'd heard her theory about Lily and Sally and had found evidence in the form of a letter that was pretty damning. So now the case is closed. But Fellows puffs up and says, though they're off the hook for now, he'll still be watching out for the Mackenzies. However, Beth is done. Quote, her finger switched to Fellows. And you will not pot them at all. You will leave them alone and find real criminals who are doing real harm. Oh, I will, will I? Your obsession ends now, because I know your secret. And our ever-observant Beth has noticed something. That fellow's looks an awful lot like the portrait of the Mackenzie brothers' father. Fellow's is their half-brother. What? 
Plot twist. (laughs) (laughs) And once the Mackenzies realize this, Fellows is family. He isn't into the idea. In fact, he's pretty bitter as he's actually two years older than Hart and would have been the Duke if he'd been born on the right side of the blanket. So he continues to resist saying, quote, I am not one of you, Fellows began. You are, Ian said. You don't want to because that means you're just as mad as the rest of us. I am not a madman, Fellows returned. There's only one madman in this room, my lord. All of us are mad in some way, Ian said. I have a memory that won't let go of details. Hart is obsessed with politics and money. Cameron is a genius with horses. And Mac paints like a god. You find out details of your cases that others miss. You are obsessed with justice and getting everything you think is coming to you. We all have our madness. Mine is just the most obvious. Everyone in the room stared at Ian, including Beth. Their scrutiny made him uncomfortable, so he buried his face in Beth's hair. After a silence, Max said, Proof we should always listen to the wisdom of Ian. And the mood lightens. Because the Mackenzies are the Mackenzies, they boisterously explain to Fellows that he's stuck with them now. And finally, Fellows relents, quote, Everyone else started talking at once. Ian ignored them, anchoring himself with Beth. Bloody hell, Fellows said. You're all madmen. And you're one of us, Hart said grimly. Be careful what you wish for. Cameron rumbled his big laugh. Get the man a drink. He looks like he's about to swoon. You'll have a Scots accent before you know it, Max said. The ladies like it, fellows. God, no. Daniel chuckled. You mean, ooh, nay. (laughs) And everyone dissolves into laughter. So a week later, our couple is on their way back to Scotland. But on the train, Ian has a very important question for Beth. He asks, Do I love you? Her heart banged in her chest. What a question. When you were ill, when Mrs. Palmer's hurt you, I knew I'd die if you died. There'd be nothing inside me, just a hole where you used to be. I never understood before. It's like fear and hope, both warm and cold, all mixed together. I know. But Ian is worried that he'll hurt Beth someday, and she assures him that he isn't his father, and that his past behavior shows over and over that he tries to protect people, not hurt them. He asks, can I ever be sure? I'll make sure. You said yourself he caused you too much misery and that you and your brothers needed to be done with him. Please, Ian, let him go. And when Ian opens his eyes again, she can see he has, because he looks directly at her again. I love you, he said. Beth caught her breath and sudden tears blurred her vision. Love you, Ian repeated. His gaze bore into her harder than hearts ever could hope to. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. Love you, love you, love you, love you, love you, love you. (laughs) And this declaration leads them into encounter number eight, which is extremely streamy and full of body talk and very carnal. Such good talk. I'm not always one for talk, but it was such good talk. It was very good talk. (laughs) And also a whole lot of I love yous. And afterwards, Ian has one more thing to say. Quote, my Beth, he whispered. Thank you. For what? Setting me free. Oh, (laughs) I know. This is so good. I know. I got the tingles all over. I know. So then we have the epilogue. It's a month later, and they've had a second wedding for Beth under the Church of England with a pretty white dress and lots of flowers. And Beth has something to tell Ian. 
he's going to be a father. Of course, he's worried that their child will be like him, but Beth knows that their child will have an advantage, if that's the case, because they'll have a family and a father who understands. And once Ian relaxes from his initial shock, he kisses Beth with much passion, offering her some carnal pleasure. Quote, Carnal pleasure indeed, offered by the maddening Lord Ian Mackenzie. Yay. Oh my God. <laughs> I can't wait to get to talk about this. Book. I know. I want to talk about it so much. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's adjourn to the parlor. You shall. Today, we're going to talk about Blush Magazine. If you don't already know, Blush Magazine is an online magazine dedicated to all things romance, and it's totally free. Yes, you can check it out online for free every month. So if you want to find out more, I recommend you go to bit.ly Blush Magazine and subscribe. But in this month, in April's month, you're going to enjoy their feature author, who is Lex Martin. You'll meet their newest Blush contributor. You can download April's book, which there are some free books to download, a look at Recursion by Blake Crouch. There's an article about Book Boyfriend friends that will make you swoon and their feature article is reading for escape so i think we all understand that right now a little we all need a little escape absolutely and they've also got a list of great reads to keep you busy while social distancing so lots of fun stuff in there for april so you should definitely check it out and again it's free yes so check it out at bit.ly slash blush magazine and as we know that our book uh, summary was very long this week. We're going to keep it real short and sweet from here on out in the parlor. You guys can find us on all the social medias at T as in Tom and as in Nancy Strumpets. And if you have a book recommendation, we'd love to hear from you. All that good stuff that you normally hear. Yeah, absolutely. You can also check out our website, romancepod.com. We might be putting up some more things up there since we've got a lot more free time. <laughs> yes, definitely check it out. We do have some new blog articles, but I think we're really excited to talk about our books. So we'll see you in the parlor next week. Yes. Let's talk about this book, Zoe. <gasps> Let's talk about it. Okay. I mean, we already knew from the beginning that we loved this book. And like going through it again, I was just like, I love this book. And I have to admit, this was probably the hardest synopsis for me to write. And I think it's always harder to write a synopsis when you love a book because you just want to convey how special that book is. But this one felt really hard because the way that Jennifer Ashley writes Ian's character as an autistic person in that time period, she just was so brilliant, in my opinion, about that because there wasn't the word autism then. You know, that it was he was he had been in an asylum, right? And yeah, obviously he was put in the asylum because his father wanted to shut him up. Um Yeah, because his father was like a douchebag of all douchebags. A murderer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, actually. Murderer. There you go. Yeah. So, but you know, other people like him were treated similarly at the time because it, there just was no understanding for that. So yes. the way she wrote it, I just thought was so brilliant. 
And I just wanted to convey it. I hope I conveyed it. I don't think I did. I mean, I had so much fun going through the synopsis with you, but like, guys, you have to read this book. (laughs) You do. Because the thing is, all the quotes we pulled are like just snippets of it. And there's so much more to it. And like, so much more. Beth's willingness to try to understand him and knowing that it's not that he's crazy or that he's insane. He just sees the world a little bit differently. And she's interested in seeing how he sees the world. Mm -hmm. Like, she wants to understand it. She wants him to have, like, she sees the caring of him. And also, too, it's hard to explain, like, the amount of devotion these brothers have towards each other. Oh, yeah. They're so cool. Like, they're just such a tight-knit family, I think, like, which is crazy because Ian was in an asylum for, like, 11 years you know, yeah. and they wrote to him, they sent him things, they, you know, they still like tried to be there for him. And mm-hmm. they've really only known him for five years of his adult life. It's very weird. Yeah. And but they were so close, you know, but they really tried to make up for it. Like, yeah, Ian has just always been with some brother or another. And the brothers just all end up on top of each other pretty much all the time. And yes. I, I want to read about these other brothers so badly. <laughs> uh, I already took a deep dive into Mac and Isabella's book. It's so good. Oh, yay. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I know. But I I also thought it was really great, you know, like the arc of, you know, calling it the madness of Lordy and Mackenzie. I feel like, you know, when you learn that it's about an autistic character, you think like, oh, is that like – you know, is that socially acceptable now to call it the madness of learning Ian McKenzie? But it makes so much sense. And there's not because because that's how he was seen at that time. And it's yeah. also the development, right, about how like it goes for, you know, be it Beth saying, I don't think he's mad to him saying I am mad. I am crazy. Like he doesn't ever say crazy. He thinks he says mad. I was declared insane. You know, I wasn't able to defend myself. But then it comes all the way full circle to Ian saying like, we're all mad in our own way. And then at the end, when she says the maddening Lord Ian McKenzie, (laughs) I'm just like, ah! But ah." also, too, I love just the idea of, like, calling it the madness of Lord Ian McKenzie, because it's not that they're like, it's not the mad Lord Ian McKenzie, it's the madness of Lord Ian McKenzie. So it's just like, what makes him seem mad? Like, what makes him different? Like, Mm -hmm. and it's so, because he is fairly high functioning in the sense that, like, oh, yeah. He can be around it. He understand like he understands where he's lacking. And yes. like just to understand where you're lacking is a huge step to like being able to see it. And he does a lot just to like because he knows he's like, I can't touch that because that's just a wormhole I can't let myself get into, you know? Yeah. And I think it's it's it, you know, I, I had this moment when I was reading it where I thought, okay, well, is is he dangerous? You know, is Beth being naive that he actually will hurt her one day? But I think that so much of his angst and difficulty at that exact moment in his life came from his fear of of what happened at High Holborn, you know, and that mm-hmm. it, it hadn't been – they hadn't been able to let it go. And I think Beth was right in saying this is a huge issue for him, and if we can – remove this from him, he will be able to relax a lot more. And so Mm -hmm. I think – and I also think Beth wasn't naive. And you see that in other parts where she says, like, you know, you can see that the trend throughout your life, Ian, has always been to protect people. And also, 
you remove yourself from situations when it gets to be too much and mm-hmm. you you pull yourself away. You're very different from your father and you have me and you have Curry and you have your brothers and you have people around you who help you in these times. So yeah, I think Beth knows that there could be times in his life where this comes back again, but I think she really understands that, you know, he has tools and mm-hmm. he does choose to use them. Yes. And I think that, you know, he talked about her being an anchor, kind of like the Ming bulls were. Yes. And like, but you see that because he is in a rage and he can't process anything around him, like the scene where he's shooting the gun and even some other scenes where he's like, he gets taken into things. It's literally just her coming up and saying his name is like, it's a lifeline for him and it grounds him. And so she is just the physical embodiment of those bulls that he loves so much. Yeah. And I didn't include that, but there was a passage where, you know, he talks about what it's like to touch the bulls and how it calms his mind. And then, so then later, then when he talks about Beth being like a Ming bull, it's like, oh, it's so like, it's heartbreaking and warming at the same time. It is. And it's very cute because she's like Ming vases. He's like, I don't know anything about Ming vases. I only know things about Ming bowls. <laughs> yes. And there was a part I didn't include where he ends up giving her a Ming bowl of his. He that- gives her the Ming bowl that he bought <sighs> off Lyndon Mather. So no, the bowl. I'm not certain it is because he shows her that bowl and then later he goes to a different bowl with green dragons. But no, but that's the one that Lyndon had. He oh, was looking at the okay, green so dragons. It is, is even that symbolic one, right? Which yeah. is that, you know, Lyndon at the beginning says like, what would a woman want with a Ming bowl. She wouldn't appreciate the beauty. She doesn't know about porcelain. Then he gives her the bowl and he's like, she loves it and thinks it's really... He's like, this is my wedding present to you. Like, this is your bowl. And then it's really cute because she's like, it's beautiful. It's perfect. And because she like understands how much it means to him. Yes. And so it's like such a gift. And then it's so cute because then he puts it back on the shelf where it belongs. (laughs) A little like, you know, label thing and it's just like it'll just live there but it's yours but but it lives there (laughs) i know and she's read a book about ming bowls so she like knows a little bit because she wanted to know about his passion i mean there's so much more in there i know (laughs) yeah and also one of the details that i thought was really cool is that she's 29 and he's 27 yeah, I loved that. I was like, ooh, a younger man. <laughs> I know. But I just, I don't know. There was something about that too where it's like, I don't know. It just felt right and good and uh, I just love them so much. So uh, something else I thought was really interesting is that um, there is, you know, when they're we talked a little bit in the beginning about the Pirates of Penzance. And so I've never seen or heard the Pirates of Penzance. I don't know. Have I you have. ever? You have? Okay. I have. I've seen them. I've seen a like film version of it. And I've seen the actual like production on stage. Fantastic. So I did a little bit of a deep dive. Well, a very small one. But I was curious. I was like, I didn't realize it was that old. But it turns out that it did mm-hmm. open in London in April 1880. And it it ran for 363 performances there. So if we're talking the early 1880s, we're right. We're spot on. So very cool. And they start singing the song, I am the very modern, sorry, I am the very model of a modern major general. And I had never heard that song before, but I do know that that is also a line that Lin-Manuel Miranda uses in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And so I went and I listened to that song and I did not realize how crazy cool it is. It's, it is so crazy cool because like I can't even say the words to it. Like I know the words so to fast. it, but it's so fast and it's such like full dialogue. Yeah. It's so difficult and it's amazing to listen to. Yeah. I was 
you may not have known, but I didn't know it. So when she was singing it to him, I was like singing it in my head. It's so and I hard. Just imagine them being there on the thing because she's singing it, and then he picks up to play it, and it's just like I cute. know. And it's and so I listened to it, and it's so fast, and it it is really cool because I'm like, yes, Lin Manuel Miranda was totally inspired by this. Not, and that's why he has the line in there, you know, mm-hmm. because there are some really fast raps, and this is. I mean, I think this song might have, and I think I may have heard this fact before that this song has more words per minute in it than um, Guns and Ships does in Hamilton, which is mm. like, I think it's number two comparatively in musical yeah. songs. And yeah, it's really cool. But I, I took the line out and I'm going to sort of, like I, like I said, I've heard the song twice and I'm going to sort of try to say it and probably make a, um, a fool out of myself. But I found this so interesting because it's like, it's something like, I am the very model of a modern major general. I'm information, vegetable, animal, and mineral. I know the kings of England and I quote the fights historical from marathon to Waterloo in order categorical or something like that. It's like, it's very mm-hmm. like, da, 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 right? Yeah. And I, it gets faster. And it gets, <laughs> yeah, it just it keeps going. And the lines get like crazy funny. And when I watched it, I was like, ah, this is so good. I'm going to have to learn more about the parrots. But then in um, Right Hand Man in Hamilton, George Washington is singing. Now I'm the model of a modern major general, the venerated Virginian veteran whose men are all lining up to put me up on a pedestal, writing letters to relatives, embellishing my eloquence. <laughs> I'm just laughing now. <laughs> embellishing my elegance and eloquence, but the elephant is in the room. The truth is in your face when you hear the British cannons go boom. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, they're so, like, I just love that inspiration. And I was just like, Oh, it's so cool. And it's everything connecting of all the things I love. And I love the like, how like the, you know, the Pirates of Penzance is very, very musically. And then you get to the like down kind of like gritty, like uh, right hand yeah. man. It's just so cool. It's so and it's so cool to see that um, the inspiration. So anyhow, yes. I know that was a bit of a tangent, but I just loved it. So it's okay. It's such a good scene because I love it because like that song is a happy song. It's like, so happy. <laughs> like Gilbert and Sullivan, like uh, I had a friend and she was in um, a couple Gilbert and Sullivan sh- productions. Mm-hmm. And so like I've seen a few of the productions from them and like they're all happy, Aww. you know, they like they're very uppity, very classically musical. <laughs> Very cool. So let's get back into talking really about our hero and heroine and yes. ratings for them. So let's talk about Ian because we have been talking about him. We have been. What's your thoughts on Ian? I love Ian. Like, I just love him to pieces because he has like, he is like, has a very like alpha male tendency to want to protect and to like, I don't want to say control, but, like, he does, you know, work for certain outcomes, but he's also got a little bit of that laid-back manner in the sense that, like, he knows he's kind of an oddity, so he Mm -hmm. kind of does hang back. But when he wants something, like, I just love the directness that he is with Beth. And he's just like, Mm -hmm. here's the the lowdown, you know? They do. They're very honest with each other. They don't really hide anything from each other. Beth, Mm -hmm. like, I think early in their relationship, he says to her, People have to tell me things. I don't read clues. And yeah. she takes that very literally. And so she she's very honest with him. And mm-hmm. I think that's why they're why we love their relationship so much yes. too. But I also love like the warming of Ian, like as you know, the whole thing about like Ian laughing and laughing mm-hmm. out loud. And everyone was startled by it because they hadn't ever heard him laugh. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, like, he was able to laugh because he was like learning to understand when Beth was making jokes. And, like, Beth spends the whole book making, like, 
she's all about the slight joke. Yes. Like, making fun of herself, making fun of others, like very dry, witty sarcasm is her like expertise. And yes. it just blew over Ian's head at first. And then all of a sudden he kind of starts to understand when she's making those jokes. Mm-hmm. And so it's not like he fully gets them, but like he does get them in some ways. And then it's like a surprise laugh because he's like, I got it. Yes, it's so great. I And he does end up making one joke at yes. the, near the end. It's so great. I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I mean, Ian has an arc. I mean, he really has he an does. arc. He does. It's a huge arc. But it isn't surprising. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, no. it totally makes sense. And mm-hmm. you're on that journey with him and you're just like, you've got this, Ian, like, I believe in you. And I had moments where I was like, come on, just like tell, like, he he doesn't give all the facts away that he knows, like, he doesn't want to open up to Beth. And, and I was kind of like, come on, Ian, like, trust her, open mm-hmm. up to her. But I get it because he's protecting the one person that who has protected him his whole life, which is Hart. Yes. So mm-hmm. when you learn that, when you learn that he thinks Hart did it, you go, okay, I kind of have to give him a pass on that because yeah. he was in between a rock and a hard place and he just was trying to do the right thing. And, mm-hmm. and so, yeah, so it made sense to me. Well, and his arc is always in line with his character. Mm-hmm. You know, it's one thing when – and it's something you, I like with a lot of romance novels is you can have characters with, like, differences in how they function and how they act, whether it's, you know, Ian and, like, having some version of autism or, like, a blind character or, like, a deaf character. But the thing is, like, that doesn't get fixed at the end. Like, Ian didn't get fixed. No. Like, he evolved, but he was still always who he was. And so even at the end where he can, like, make himself meet Beth's eyes, it's never for – it's still not for very long, mm-hmm. but it's, like, he's working on it. Yeah. And it's a struggle for him. But the thing is, like, those little glimpses, like, she appreciates them so much. So even if she only gets it, like, once in a while, it's better than nothing. And so she's just like, okay. How heartbreaking is it that line in the beginning when she's like, you know, would she envy the woman who catches his gaze or would she, you know, I don't remember it exactly, but it's like, oh, it's so good. Yeah. Oh, I completely agree. Have you ever read another book with an autistic character? Not an autistic character. I read one with a blind character. Mm. I see. And it was great because the blindness was not fixed at the end. There wasn't yeah. some magical fixing of it. He's like, no, I'm yeah. blind and that's how I'm going to be. Yeah. So I have read one. I read The Bride Test, which is a contemporary novel. Um, and it is quite good also. I, it was the first contemporary novel that I read that I really loved. Although, again, mm-hmm. I've only read a very small amount of them. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was similar. However, this character knows he has autism. And Mm -hmm. although his family like kind of brushed it off a little bit um, when he was younger, he still lived in the contemporary world and had an understanding of this is what I have. I'm not the only one with it. I'm not crazy. I have differences than other people. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was very different than this where the character doesn't have really any support for it except for having been beaten and tortured his whole life for being how he is. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was just interesting. I I don't really have much on that except like um I, I thought both authors did a really really great job with autistic characters and in their surroundings and in the time period that they were in so let's give ian a rating do you have a rating for ian yeah mm-hmm. i'm gonna give him like 
a 10. I just love him. Yeah, me too. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I just love him. He's so cool. He's everything I love about a hero. Like he's Mm -hmm. interesting. He's clear. um, He's so different than so many of the heroes we read. And yet he, you know, even despite his having autism, which some people might see as a stigma and, you know, maybe I'm jumping the gun here and saying this, but like, I don't think if, I don't think most people would like say like, I think autism is sexy. You know, Mm -hmm. that's not something that I think most people would jump to, but like Jennifer Ashley did such a brilliant job with him. She did such a brilliant job with him Ian isn't his autism and Ian's Mm. autism isn't sexy, but Ian is sexy. Do you know what I mean? Like he is such a cool character. Mm -hmm. I love how different he was. And I don't want that to come off as like, I, you know, feel like this disability makes him sexier, but I just appreciate so much that the author took the time to do something different and to do it right. And I appreciate that so much. And I think she did a 10 out of 10 with it. A hundred percent agree. Yeah. And let's talk about Beth because she's also a badass. She is a badass. We've talked mostly about Ian just because he's so fascinating and such, like I said, all the things that I already said about him. Mm -hmm. But Beth is great. Yeah. She's very self-aware. She's very aware that like she has this new position in life because she inherited money, but she just was half like she realizes like how much luck played a part in her life. You know, she's not she's not really looking for anything in particular. Like she's very like fine with who she is. Yep. And that's like she's very good with that. And she knows who she is mm-hmm. and She's it's funny. happy to walk away. And she's funny. She's like, so she's funny. funny. But she's so perfectly funny for this book because she's not just like, boom, right? She's like yeah. subtly funny. And, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the lines that we read really encapsulated that. Like when she comes up to heart and she just kind of like, oh, everything's great and this and that. But she's not just only is she funny, but like you need that. You need that little bit of lightness. Mm-hmm. You need her. You need someone who can take Ian's seriousness with a grain of salt and find yes. some joy in it. And mm-hmm. that that kind of dichotomy is so great. And oh. it's it's so great because we kind of touched on it briefly where her first encounter with Hart and she's just like, hi, I'm Beth. Like, nice to meet you. Yeah. Um, thank you for asking about the journey. Yeah, like, you know, so good. like she just is like, you're like, she just is you're being at this. And Ian, we didn't talk about, but in the scene, Ian basically just like takes a step back and just delights in the fact that Hart is now like pitted against his wife. And he's yep. like, God, she's great. Yes. <laughs> Yes. And like she's also from the moment she meets Ian, she is attracted to him. Mm-hmm. And she really like is rooted in her own opinions. You know, she doesn't let people sway her. And she she really like sees Ian for Ian. And like for just from the beginning, like she doesn't I don't know. She doesn't believe in his madness. You know, she doesn't. No, she never sees it as a detriment. She's like, this is just who he is. And that makes him a wonderful, awesome human. Yeah. And I really like, and I just like, I can, she even knows it from the beginning. She's like, I can love this man. Like, he might be a little odd at times and he might not be the same as everybody else, but like, I could easily love him. Yes. And like, that'll be hard because like, 
I don't know if that can be reciprocated to me. And that'll break my heart because I love him so much. Oh, yeah. I mean, it it was just so smart. Like every every character development, like moment, every line felt so smart because there really were just these, mo- you know, when she's like so attracted to him and writing in her journal and like all the things she wishes she would do with him. Like, it's just, it's just a woman who's falling for a man and there isn't like she, just like you accept somebody who has like emotional trauma or you accept that they have this or accept that, you know, they, I don't know, don't like spinach, you know, she's just like, I accept that Ian is different than a lot of other people, but I'm attracted to him. And mm-hmm. he deserves love and and I might be able to fall in love with him, even though I don't yes. want to. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. So Beth. Ten. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just sh- – and that was what also made this book so good. Is you the characters this, were so great. You have this stunning character in Ian that is like – so fascinating to read and so interesting and so many dimensions, but you also have the same in Beth, yes. right? Like we kept she talking. She doesn't let you down. Like they, like both characters are fully formed. They're both dynamic. Yes. They both have interesting past. They both are happy to communicate. And it's just like, yes. And the two of them together are just like, oh, so They're good. fire. They're just so fire. So good. Yes. So do you have a favorite quote from this book? And I know this is hard because I added so many that were so good. (laughs) Yes, you do. There's one one liner that was just heartbreaking that I'm going to share because I think it needs to be shared. And then there's the other one that's at the end where Ian makes his joke. But the heartbreaking one is, so Ian was sent to the asylum after witnessing his father murder his mother. And it says... He'd been in the private asylum two weeks before he finally understood he'd not be allowed to go home, ever. Ugh, there were a lot of moments where my heart just, like, clenched in this book. Ugh. Which is just, like, broke. And then this one's a little bit more lighthearted because Beth has just told Ian that she's having a baby and he's worried, as we said, that he'll be the baby will be like him. And, quote, But he'll have an advantage. He'll have a father and uncles who understand. She smiled. Or she, if it's a girl, of course, she will be perfect. I agree, Ian said gravely. Beth started to explain her jest, then looked up at him in surprise. Was that a joke, (laughs) Ian McKenzie? You are teaching me, he leaned down to her with your spicy tongue. Beth darted out the tongue in question. Does it taste spicy? Yes. He slid his thumb in a slow caress across her bottom list. But let me taste it again. Oh, they are so hot and heavy, those two. I know. Yeah, so mine is somewhere in the middle of those two quotes, I would say, as far as heat level. But it's in the (laughs) beginning when they're first meeting at the opera. And this is when Ian is talking about how he can play pieces note for note, but he cannot capture their soul. And so Beth is Mm -hmm. like kind of surprised by that and... Um, Ian almost said, teach me to hear it as you do, but he knew that was impossible. She was like rare porcelain, he thought, delicate beauty with a core of steel. Cheap porcelain crumbled to dust or shattered, but the best pieces survived until they reached the hands of a collector who would care for them. So I just loved the symbolism and like foreshadowing in that, you know, like there's a lot. I have to say, I really loved her writing. It was good. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. Very yes. good writing. Yes. I've, I can't believe I haven't fantastic. read more of her stuff. And I know that she, I think she has, this is her only historical series, or maybe she has one other, but um, she's written a lot. So we know that. Know. Yeah. I did realize, though, I hadn't read, so mm-hmm. I was looking through the books, and I realized I don't have, like, the last three in this series, which I'm going to buy one because one of them is Daniel's ah. book, which I didn't read. But the thing is, I got to book number five, and then it was, like, two characters I'd never heard of or, like, maybe were briefly gotcha. mentioned in another one. And then the then there's Daniel's book, and then the last two books are, once again, characters that, like, gotcha. I had no reference point to. And so it was just kind of like, I don't know who these are. I'm not invested in them. I'm invested in the brothers and I'm invested in Daniel. And like, yeah. this is where my I think for ends. me, Mac and Isabella's story, like I'm a little hesitant because that's usually the kind of stories I, I don't love as much. Oh, it's a wild ride, Zoe. It's a wild ride because there's a there's something that's going to get thrown oh, at you that you're not going to see coming. Okay, and okay, it's okay, wild. okay, okay. I'll get to it. I know I will because I just love her writing. And but I am super interested in heart. Like who's going to claim Heart's heart? Yeah. Oh, I know. I really want to get Cam. Cam yeah, is the Cam. funny man of I the sto- of the Cam's family. Book. Like I've got to learn more about Cam. So let's talk about our steaminess rating and our encounter counters. You mean the steaminess that goes through the roof? It is so steamy. Like, literally, it's like someone took the teapot and just, like, poured it over my head of scalding tea. Oh, my God. It's just, like, scalding hot. Like, scalding. <laughs> and and I loved it. Pour it all over me again. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, it was so, like, it's so funny because sometimes, the, like, it gets to that level and sometimes it, like, not uncomfortable, like it doesn't get uncomfortable, but I can kind of, I'm kind of like, okay, I'm, I get it. Yeah, I get it. But with this, like, it was so like, because it was such like, all of it was like a slow burn. So, you know yes. what I mean? Like, it just like, it just, it was slow and it built and it built and it built. And then it just like, you know, I think, we and then talked it reached about its climax. This. And then it was like, oh. Yeah. But I think we talked about this for the Viscount and the Vixen. I think that at that point, that was the most encounters we'd had. It was like six, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think we both were yeah. like, okay, we get it. Like, they have sex again. Like, it wasn't yeah. – it just wasn't um, – it didn't feel right, but this one, like, they had eight encounters. This is the most encounters we have had in a book. That And there were technically, yeah. like, maybe two others because she wrote about one in her diary that, again, wasn't explicit. And so mm-hmm. I didn't include that one. And then um, I also – there was, like, they woke up the next morning after having sex. But I was like, but mm-hmm. we didn't talk about it, so it can't be – you know, like, doesn't – fit the criteria of what we count yeah but like every single time felt important it did and it wasn't like it was definitely as we've talked about like the whole point of sex in these books is to like further the relationship along and all of them felt like a moment in the relationship like even when they Mm -hmm. have the one on the train and it's because like ian's pacing and he doesn't like being confined and beth's understanding that but she's like can we take your mind off of it, yeah, you know, yeah. which is just like a moment for them. And then it's also kind of, but it also helps in a disconnected moment too, because mm-hmm. he just goes right back to pacing, but at least she slowed him down for that minute. And so you see his willingness to come to her, even if he's like having trouble, you know, so it's just, oh yeah. Ugh, also good. Also it's good. really good. Like, I just feel like the chemistry between the two of them was like, 
off the charts and they felt like two people who had just been waiting to find each other like oh yeah and I love it because it was like the moment she saw him she was like danger zone danger zone (laughs) danger zone yeah yeah definitely and she was just trying to like make her way in life and her circumstances had changed so much over her short life right you know ups and downs Mm -hmm. and she was like I all of a sudden have all this money and I just want to be stable I just want to be stable and like have a nice life and so like that's Mm -hmm. all I want I want it to be you know easy breezy beautiful yeah Uh, (laughs) I mean she was only looking to marry in the first place because she was like you know ladies have husbands like that'll be good and like he seems kind of boring enough which is all I want out of life (laughs) oh my gosh anyhow ah so um we could talk about their their heat all day, but let's talk about the feminist recap. Yes. I will also just talk about this as an inclusive recap, too, yeah. because this book was very inclusive. Like, there's a moment in Paris where Ian actually, like, meets a quote-unquote friend, and it's someone he knew from the asylum mm-hmm. because he helped, like, displace punishment because he's like, yeah, he likes men, but he can't help that, so... Yeah. Like, whatever. Yeah, it was interesting. I I wanted to put that in here because I loved that, but I was like, I have to cut out somewhere or we're never going to get through this synopsis. It made sense to cut out. But it's very cute, guys, because, like, they meet in Paris and then when they have their wedding, they invite that lord. Yeah. Because, like, because Beth is like, Ian does have a friend. Yes. Kind of. Yeah. (laughs) It's it's a... It's an extremely positive, inclusive book. And I also think it's Mm -hmm. very feminist as far like looking at 100% because Beth is such a strong voice. But also there are moments like sexually where like she she says, I have this quote where where she says like, and if I decide to run away and he says, then we'll wait. And Beth hesitated, her legs feeling like water. But at the same time, she knew nothing would induce her to leave this room short of a fire. A very large fire. I'll need help with the buttons, she said. (laughs) You know, so there's all these, like, you know, sexually freeing moments where she's like, yeah, I want this guy. This is for me. I'm a widow. What What am I waiting for? But it's like, Like, and even though he was, like, the one that was like, I want to bed you. Like, I can marry you. You know, like, even though he initiated mm -hmm. that, like, the first, like, she was the one that was like, I've given it some thought. And I think we should, you know, have an affair, yeah. essentially. She was just like, I've given it thought, and I think we should proceed with this. But we're doing it on my terms. Yes. It was great. I mean, ugh, Beth. Ugh, Beth. Ugh, Ian. I just, I loved them both. So let's get into our final book writing, shall we? We shall. I have one more comment about the book in general that I didn't okay. I didn't talk about in our general recap. So I think if I had to say that the book had any weaknesses, I felt like the murder plot, like it just took a while to kind of get all the pieces. Mm-hmm. I actually really loved uncovering them all. It just, you know, like I, I kind of already said with Ian, like I was like, why are you holding back? And then when you find out why he's holding back, you're like, damn it. <laughs> it yeah. makes sense now. Um, I also felt like fellows, like I kept being like, why does fellows hate them so much? Why does fellows hate them so much? And to me, what seemed the most natural conclusion there was that some woman in Fellows's life had been wronged by the Mackenzies mm. because it's and which I guess was maybe his mother but technically it's true his mother was wronged by yeah the Lord Mackenzie but I just kept waiting to see that like somehow a like you know uh, Cameron's wife had died in in birth with Daniel and Hart's wife had died so there were all these women who'd come oh, in no. contact with Cam's wife 
Hart's wife died in childbirth. But Cam's wife Dan- tried to... Cam's wife tra- killed herself. Killed herself. She tried to kill Daniel, and then she killed herself. So tragic things, right, with, with these women. Mm-hmm. So I expected there to be some really tragic story like that, you know, or one of those women mm-hmm. had somehow been maybe the woman he'd fallen in love with, or I don't know, I, yeah. something. So when it turned out that he was their half-brother, I was... I saw that it was basically um, the. It seemed to me like the author was like had already had that in her mind and was like he's going to be another brother and there'll be a book about him and yes. yada yada, which is fine. There's not, which is sad. really there isn't. Interesting. There's not a fellows book. Huh. Like I said, you get these weird characters I know nothing about. Well, I'm sure they pop up here and there, but I'm sure they do. I don't remember. Yeah, I kind of. I, so I, I don't know. I was. I was. Um, I don't know. It just didn't it didn't connect with me quite as much, although I loved the scenes and thought that they were funny. So that's where I felt like maybe if the book had a bit of a weakness, that that was where it was. Um, yes. And I think that reading Mac and Isabella's book recently, too, which I know you haven't, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that, like, it seems that's kind of like her formula. There's like this one overarching like type mystery mm-hmm. that like putting the puzzle pieces together is um part of what kind of drives that plot along and yes. drives and drives that character development because there's like this one overarching thing that they have to worry about but it's not always at the forefront mm-hmm. like the relationship is really the forefront but this thing is like big cat like when you would have a moi- where you would have a point of the characters like having that you know big misunderstanding where they have that break away from each other this instead of using that plot device this whole overarching you know murder plot Mm -hmm. is actually what kind of takes its place so there's like you know that murder plot kind of gets injected in there to kind of further along yeah no no i i mean so i just i i loved the murder plot you know at the end of it i just was like okay maybe there I mean, was like talk about some crazy twists and turns on that murder plot seriously and it was it was thrilling and we didn't do it justice like if you read it you'll be like no. oh here's where the things come in like it's so you bad. don't expect mrs paul you don't expect mrs palmer until like no. the very no. end <laughs> yeah and i was so yeah okay anyhow but i would love to give this book a final rating would you like me to go first this time you went first on all the others yeah you go first yeah i'm gonna give it a 10 <laughs> oh thank god because that's where i'm at too <laughs> i just for for i mean i wanted to mention that i thought maybe there were some 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 weaker points with that but like for goodness sakes i have not read a book in so long that had me so riveted and had me so happy i had such a thrilling time reading this book yeah, and especially since it's, you know, it's a new author for you. I didn't even remember I'd read yeah. it. So it was so – it was a total, like, I re- read it and was immediately captivated immediately. by it and was immediately drawn into the story. And then I immediately had to, like, read the others because I had to know. That paragraph in the beginning of this book where Ian, like – it's literally in the beginning – where Ian, like, gets stuck staring at the droplet of ink, I was just mm-hmm. like <gasps> – this book. I love it already. It's so good. It's so well written. I was just like, I was so enamored. It was, it was everything I love. Yes. No, it was absolutely fabulous and great characters. Honestly, like great characters. And I was, and you're going to like Mac and Isabella. Okay. 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 You're going to like it. Uh, Even if it's not your favorite trope, like there's nothing wrong with that book. Like okay. that book is also fabulous. Okay. I will I will definitely read it. I am so excited to do so because 
I really loved this book and I'm so glad you did too. In fact, I'll, I'll part the curtain a little bit. I texted Kelsey after I after I knew she had read it and I said, I just have to know if you liked this book or not because normally we don't <laughs> ask this question of each other until we no. talk in the podcast. But I was like so afraid you were not going to love it and then I was going to spend all this time <laughs> writing the notes and then waiting and then you were going to break my heart like you did with the Earl I ruined. And so I was like, <laughs> I just have to set my poor little heart up for that this time. And you were like, no, I really liked it. And I was like, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) No, I was like all ready to talk about it afterwards. I finished reading it and I was like, okay, let's go. (laughs) Yes, it was just – I, I haven't read a lot of new-to-me books because we've been choosing books for the podcast that are yeah, series. Often a reread. Yeah, often a reread. And the new books that we have read have not really captivated me this year so far. Um, you know, I think we already – we've heard our ratings on all the books. And mm-hmm. this just, just totally blew me away. I loved this book. I'm so glad we read Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Me too. It was so good. Yes, and sadly, we are not continuing with the series at this time. But what are we reading next time, Kelsey? Next time, we are headed back to Penny Royal Green. Yay! Woohoo! And we will be reading A Notorious Countess Confesses by Julie Ann Long. Yes. Which is our lovely, handsome vicar, mm-hmm. Adam Slavine. And I don't remember the Duchess, the Countess's name. Evie. <laughs> and Evie Countess Duggan, Evie. I believe. We have Adam and Eve. <laughs> Oh, my God. I didn't even put that together. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's a little wink there, you know, the vicar and the and the uh, former courtesan. So uh, that one's going to be fun. It's been a while since I've read that. And I do remember loving it. But I am very excited to go back to it. So I hope you all join us next week as we read A Notorious Countess Confesses by Julie Ann Long. And may all your ever afters end happily. Tea and Strumpets is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Should she pity the woman those eyes finally rested on or envy her? Oh, I'm sorry. I have to pause. I love so many of these quotes. (laughs) Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. Okay. She trailed off her face going still. I'm sorry. I have to break in. I did not notice that until I, my second, that she kind of like trailed off after Miss Palmer murder day. Like she had that idea earlier. I Mm -hmm. totally didn't catch that. I'm sorry. Keep going. (laughs) (laughs) She trailed off her face going still. To me, he is simply Ian. (sighs) I know. I just have these moments all through this book. I'm sorry. (laughs)